Hello, friends. Steve here again, welcoming you to, uh, well, for now, we're calling the Discovery Podcast. Um, You know, historically, this uh, has been basically just a straight upload of our Sunday morning teaching. You know, we record it live during our gathering, and then we just dump it on uh, to the webpage, and you guys have access to it uh, to listen uh, at your leisure, um, whether that's through the app or the webpage or Apple, uh, the Apple Store, Apple Music, Podcast, whatever they're calling it these days. That's been the way we've gotten this out uh, to people before. In, in this day and age, in this moment that we're living through right now of uh, the coronavirus, of uh, sheltering in place and um, continuing to not meet together on Sunday mornings as a way to love our neighbors and to love each other, We've you know been digitally broadcasting our gatherings, and that's been really great. Uh, it's been um, well, not ideal. It has been a good way for us to uh, continue to feel like we are together in this thing, and to keep meeting, and and to have that rhythm be a part of our life together as a church. And that's a beautiful thing. I'm really grateful for that. It's also though given us the freedom to experiment a little bit with this. So. Um, what you are listening to here and what we are posting for the time being is not a straight recording of what we do on Sunday morning, but a re-recording with some additional thoughts, some uh, extra space to expound on uh, the particular topic or passage of scripture on that day. And this is really exciting because we are limited right now. So one of the reasons why our digital gatherings run in the 45-minute window is I think a, a couple of things. One, philosophically speaking, the ability to hold our attention digitally is harder than when you are sitting you know, in a theater on Sunday morning. So we're doing less songs. It's a shorter uh, time together. It's a little bit more concise and direct and, and to the point uh, to conserve time so that you don't feel like you have to sit in front of a screen for this extended period of time. But the other part of it is that this moment allows for us to experiment. And one of the things that, you know, we've wanted to experiment with with for a while is different styles of teaching, uh, different ways of teaching, teaching in both shorter and longer formats. And so this is an opportunity for us to try experimenting with the shorter format. And I know it's been a challenge for me. Pastors like to get all of their words in. Um, and I've, you know, been pretty conditioned to about a 30-minute, you know, speaking cadence. Uh, and so this has been a good, uh, a good test. It's stretched me. It's uh, forced me to really think through the sort of what and how of what needs to be said and communicated. Um, and uh, and again, I think part of our ethos, even the DNA that's being created at Discovery right now is we want to be innovative. We want to try new things. We don't want to just do it because this is the way it's always been done. We don't want to teach for 40 minutes because that's what you do. You teach for 40 minutes. No, we want to find ways that help people discover the good news of Jesus. And for a lot of people in our culture, they're used to watching you know, 15 to 20 minute TED Talks. If they're going to listen to somebody talk at them for a while, that's about the amount of time that they uh, have, again, been conditioned to. And so that format is what we're leaning into, not because 
the best format, but it is a way to experiment with how do we continue to get better at communicating the good news of Jesus to the people that we're trying to reach. And so that's part of the experiment that we're in right now. So rather than just kind of replay that here, though, this does give us an opportunity to talk a little bit more, to go a little bit slower, to expound on a couple of points. And that's also really fun. So if you uh, watch the digital gatherings on Sunday and you want to get a different spin on things, not not a completely different spin, but if you want to just kind of have a different way of engaging with stuff, then hopefully the podcast is a good gift to you. And if you're just someone who listens and follows along, hopefully this is a way for you to continue to do that as well. All right, today we are in the ninth part of our journey through the book of First Samuel, and we are in... Um, the seventh part of looking at the character of Samuel. If you've been tracking with this conversation, you know that we've been looking at this book through the lens of of the eyes of certain characters. So we started with Hannah, who is Samuel's mom, and now we've moved on to Samuel. And then uh, we have, I think, one more week after this one, and then we're going to look at Saul, and then we're going to look at David. So the book is kind of split into those four movements through the eyes of those four characters. There's a lot of overlap, and each character still continues to show up in different ways, but that's how we've broken it out. So part nine of first Samuel, part seven of looking at Samuel's story. And then today the text itself is first Samuel 11 and it's only 15 verses. So this is one of the shorter passages that we will be looking at in this conversation. So I want to pray and then we'll, uh, we'll dive in to this together. Heavenly father in this moment where Everything has been turned upside down. We are grateful for technology. And I know I'm feeling tired of of it to a certain degree. I know many other people are feeling fatigued by Zoom or screens or just having to be on and interact with people in a different way. And yet at the same time, God, we hold it as a gift because it still allows us to gather. It still allows us to communicate and to feel connected with each other during this time where we are physically apart. So thank you for that good gift. Now, God, as we look at your word, would you help us to hear your word? Help us to not get caught up in whatever filters and baggage we bring into this. Help us to be open and receptive to your word and what you want to say to us. God, we do know that we come in with a lot of things on our mind, worries, concerns, fears, questions, doubts, Uh, anxiety, Um, so much is unknown about what lies ahead. And so we lay that at your feet. We ask you to hold it for us so that we can be free to, again, hear your word spoken to us, free to receive what you want to say to us, free to respond in whatever ways we need to respond. Thank you for the gift of life, the gift of relationship with you through Jesus, and for this adventure that you invite us into this life in your kingdom, God. We are so grateful. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus and everybody listening said, amen. Martin Luther King Jr. is an American icon for so many reasons. We remember him, of course, for his civil rights leadership. We remember him as an activist. We remember his incredible talent as a public speaker. But a lot of times we forget that King 
started off as an academic. He studied at Boston University, where uh, I was a campus minister for about six years. My wife Amy went to grad school there uh, as well. He is all over the School of Theology. They uh, really do a great job of honoring his presence and time in Boston. Now, when he was a student there, he he was studying kind of a dual track ministry and uh, uh, continuing some of his intellectual pursuits. And he wrote his thesis on prayer and in particular how God speaks to people in prayer. He was fascinated by his grandparents, some of the older African-American folks that he knew and, and the way in which they so fully believed that God spoke to them when they prayed. And so he wanted to, to look into that more but he did it from a purely academic perspective. If you read his stuff from that point in his life, you can see it. You can see this great academic mind at work. But in his own words, by his own assessment, that's really all it was. It was an academic exercise trying to intellectually wrap his mind around, for lack of a better term, these old folks and the experiences that they had in prayer. Now, when he graduated, he had this great fork in the road moment, he he thought about pursuing uh, his PhD, and then he also thought about taking a pastoral position. And quite frankly, in the fifties, for an African American man, it was not easy to continue getting that level of education. He also felt that he wanted some real life experience, so he took this pastoral position at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. This was the summer of nineteen fifty four. 18 months later, a woman named Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery. And this, of course, led to the Montgomery bus boycott, which, of course, was one of the significant sparks that lit the fire for the civil rights movement. And so here we go. Martin Luther King Jr., the great academic, finds himself in the middle of a very real life crisis. He gets involved. He begins to play a more active role in this thing. And as he takes on a more prominent role, he receives death threats, uh, both on his own life and on the life of his family. And one particular moment, a very tense moment during the strike, his phone rings in the middle of the night. King gets up, he stumbles out of bed, he, he makes his way to the phone, and there's a very angry white man on the other side of the line telling him, I am going to bomb your house. There's no going back to sleep after a phone call like that. So King makes some coffee. He sits down at his kitchen table and he is done. He's ready to give it up and check out and go back to Boston and move in a completely different direction. In the book, Stride Towards Freedom, he writes, I was ready to give up. With my cup of coffee sitting untouched before me, I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. So here is this man who has spent a significant portion of his life academically studying prayer. And can you actually talk to God? And does God actually talk back to you? This is his thesis. Now he's been thrust into a leadership role. He's in the middle of a civil rights moment. He's just received a death threat. 
a threat that would impact not only him, but his whole entire family. And he sits there at his kitchen table and he prays. As we've been talking about, he contends with God. This is no longer an intellectual exercise. This is the real deal. And as he contends in prayer in the middle of the night at his kitchen table with a cold cup of coffee in front of him, he hears God speak to him. God says, Martin, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for truth. And I will be at your side forever. Almost at once, he wrote, my fears begin to go. I was ready to face anything. This is his moment of transformation from Martin Luther King Jr., the great academic mind, to Martin Luther King Jr., the leader, the activist. We see a similar transformation in the story of Saul. Saul, we've been introduced to uh, in, in the uh, last week as we looked at chapters 9 and 10 of the book of 1 Samuel. Saul is chosen to be the first king of Israel, and he is this hesitant leader who also gets formed by a crisis. When we're introduced to Saul at the beginning of chapter 9, we see he's tall, handsome. He comes from this good family, this strategic tribe within the people of Israel. We see, most importantly, again, God chooses him to be the king. All these things look really good on the surface. But we also see Saul get off to a rocky start. The rest of chapter 9 and 10, right? He questions his abilities. He hides from his responsibility. Today, we're going to see that he goes back to farming. The people are divided over him. Most of them are excited, but there are these few that have their doubts. 1 Samuel 10, 27 says there were some scoundrels who doubted whether he was going to be a good king. Now, in the midst of all of this, there's some really nasty things going on on kind of the outskirts of the people of Israel. The beginning of chapter 11, we read this. These are the first three verses here. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. All the men of Jabesh said to him, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. All right. They're like, hey, just don't kill us. We'll do whatever it takes. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you, and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, "Uh, Give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel, and if no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. Now, if you're following along in your Bible, you may notice a a note at the beginning of verse 1. Actually, there should be like an A or footnote there next to Nahash in verse 1. You read down below, you'll see that there is some context that's left out. There's some information that appears in a couple of manuscripts um, that depending on which translation you're looking at and kind of the decision of the editors who put that together, they may or may not include it, but it's very helpful context. And what that note will tell you is that Nahash is the king of the Ammonites. The Ammonites are a longstanding enemy of Israel, and he is a nasty dude, all right? He's been on the warpath for a while. He had been targeting two tribes of Israel, Gad and Reuben, and he had defeated them, and he'd done this gouging out of the right eye before. Now, this was done to mark these people. It was done to demonstrate his dominance over them. And then as it says here in verse 2 of chapter 11, it was done to bring disgrace, not just on them, but on all of Israel. And so as as his terror campaign continues on, here comes this crisis. 
There's this oppressed minority within Israel. There's this enemy bent on evil. And now there's a time crunch, seven days to sort this out. This brings us to verse four as we continue to read through chapter 11. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then, Saul was returning from the field. So again, here we see he's been anointed the king, but he's gone back to his farm. He's behind his oxen. He said, what's wrong with everyone? Why are you weeping? They repeated to him what Jabesh had said. Now pay attention to this. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, he cut them into pieces, sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they came out together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000 and those of Judah 30,000. So this takes us now through verse 8. Saul, the king of Israel, is farming. He's plowing his fields, right? He's on his tractor. Apparently things were a bit slow in the king department. But here, a moment arrives. One of the things that you know immediately stands out about this point in the story is the strong reactions that everyone is, is having. This is what gets Saul's attention, right? The weeping that he hears. Now, weeping was not a, a few tears rolling down the cheeks. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, weeping was loud. It was dramatic. It was noticeable. It was a full-bodied reaction to grief. Saul himself, when he gets the news of Nahash's oppression, it says that the Spirit of God came on him and he burned with anger. And it's important to dwell here for just a moment. And this might be crazy for some of us to think about because there is this kind of line of thinking within the church, within um, some Christian circles, that strong emotions are bad and that expressing strong emotions is a bad thing to do. But here we see that Saul becomes angry when the Spirit of God comes on him. Anger, in and of itself, not a bad thing. Saul is experiencing God's emotions, God's anger over oppression and injustice. Let me say it one more time. Strong emotions themselves are not bad. And this is important really at any time, but this is especially important for us to consider right now because a lot of us are having uh, a lot of feelings. We're experiencing strong emotions, sheltering in place, being this disconnected from other human beings is not the way that we were created and, and wired up. And so there is a physical response to this. Dr. Kurt Thompson wrote this incredibly helpful article came out a couple of weeks ago now. It's called A Body of Work. And he says, reminds us that anger is a natural physical reaction to asking our brain to do things it is not used to doing. When you sit in front of a screen all day, interacting with other human beings, you're asking your brain to do something it is not used to doing. And the way that that gets internalized into our actual physical bodies is to become irritated. Okay, your body is being stressed and that stress creates emotions. And one of those emotions is going to be anger. Crisis of any sort creates strong emotions. And so friends, if you need to weep, weep, let it out. 
you need to be angry, be angry. The the Bible says in other places, you know, be angry, but don't sin in your anger. And of course, there's uh, healthy and unhealthy ways to do this, appropriate and inappropriate ways to do this. But it is okay to feel angry and even to express that anger. Saul and his anger cuts up some cows. So, you know, this is one of those uh, scenes where I, you know, always kind of chuckle a little bit because people are always like, oh, we got to be biblical. We got to be biblical. Well, apparently it's biblical to chop up some cows when you are really ticked off. <laughs> but Saul does this very William Wallace Braveheart thing, right? He cuts these oxen up as a message to the people. Hey, there's a crisis. We need to take action. And you know what? It works very effectively. Verse seven says the people came out together as one. Let's continue on here. Verse nine, they told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will surrender to you and you can do to us whatever you like. This is very tricky. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So Saul issues the call to action. The people rally together as one. And then they play this awesome trick on the Ammonites. They, They fake this surrender and then ambush them at night. Now, this is a gnarly story right? Slaughtering them until the heat of the day, you know, separating everybody, um, you know, the ones who survive this sneak attack in the middle of the night after they'd already set some terms of surrender. Like, you know, this would not pass the Geneva convention, but this was a different age and their actions lead to a great victory and not just to a great victory, but also to an important moment for Saul. This is the end of our, our section of the book of First Samuel today, the last three or four verses, starting in verse 12. The people then said to Samuel, remember, he's still our main character. Who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Okay, remember those scoundrels from the end of chapter 10? Turn those men over to us so that we may put them to death. But Saul steps in and says, no one will be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. The Lord, not Saul, not this unified group of people. The Lord has rescued Israel. And so Samuel said to the people, come, let's go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. So at the beginning of this final section here, Saul has an opportunity to exact the same type of vengeance that he took on the Ammonites, but now on his own people, right? Those scoundrels who didn't approve of him at first. By the way, a totally reasonable thing for a king to do at that time. It was very common for when a new king, uh, when they would come in, it was common for them to wipe out all of their enemies. Saul goes against the grain here, lays his aside he he exhibits an extremely rare humility really for a leader of our day but especially for a leader of that time and he seeks the unity of the people over whatever other agenda might have crept in 
an important transformational moment for Saul, an important moment of unity for the people of Israel. We saw earlier Martin Luther King Jr. transformed from brainy academic to passionate activist. Saul here transformed from hesitant farmer to a humble warrior king. And Saul's story ends in a big old celebration. Okay, Crisis leads to sacrifice and risk and generosity, which then leads to unity and celebration. Now, this gets down to some nitty-gritty, tangible action for us to talk about as a community. We've had a couple community-wide conversations about generosity. How do we respond collectively and individually to this pandemic? And one of the things that I've loved about this and appreciated so deeply is that our elders, independent of any sort of urging from me, they've gotten this together and gotten the ball rolling on this without me um, having to tell them to do that or whatever. That's been awesome to see that initiative. And then I've also loved just being able to sit in on the meetings without having to lead them and, and then just get to hear how people in our community are responding and doing some really incredible things. Okay, I know of people who are checking in on their neighbors, who are buying groceries, who are you know picking up packages, making runs to the, the post office, uh, bringing over meals uh, for their neighbors, beautiful stuff. Lots of people are calling friends, uh, are doing some tangible things like sewing a mask or, or mobilizing a part of their business to meet a need. Some folks have adopted local businesses. They just go buy coffee at the same place every day or they, they, they've been ordering from particular places to support local businesses. All of those are beautiful stories. Our, our community continues to be generous in giving to Discovery. We've had a great giving month in March, another great giving month in April that is beautiful. And all of that is a sign of a healthy community, right? Taking initiative in these ways. But in addition to that, collectively, our response to this moment is a way in which we fulfill our mission to help people discover the good news of Jesus. Good news is not an idea, it's a way of life, an abundant life of right relationships, of generosity, and of love. And we point people to the good news of Jesus when we live out these values, when we take risks and when we sacrifice and when we are united around a cause, it speaks good news to the people around us. Now I've seen discovery. I've seen you do this many times already in my you know short time with you. You have responded with generosity and sacrifice to the fire and reading to the fire in paradise. You've responded to the news that an overseas partner of ours was kicked out of the country they were serving in. They had to come back to the United States with nothing. Every time we've put something in front of you, Discovery, you have responded to these crises with sacrifice and generosity and love. When we do this, it leads to unity and to celebration. So, Let me lay out for us the challenge that lies ahead. Okay, Our goal here is to raise $5,000 in the next two weeks. Now, why $5,000 and why two weeks? Okay, Some ways, an arbitrary number and an arbitrary timeline, but uh, important, and I'm going to explain that now. I would call this $5,000 two-week goal the radical minimum standard. This is the least that we can do, right? This is the starting point for us 
My hope and our prayer is that we blast way past this. So let me talk about the money for a minute. $5,000 would help us accomplish three things. And again, we hope to go way beyond this, but at minimum, it would help us accomplish these things. First, it will help us bless our five missions partners with the mid-year gift. This is a global pandemic. It has impacted each one of them. And in some instances, it's impacted them far more than it has impacted us here in Davis. As we've been talking to them about this, we know that these mid-year gifts would be a huge morale boost. It would be a, a very exciting thing for them to receive and a way to kind of keep going through a difficult time. Second, we want to give two $1,000 gifts, so $1,000 each to Empower YOLO and Forth and Hope. Now, these are both organizations we've worked with before and continue to work with and are building relationships for a long-term partnership. But both of these organizations work with some of the most vulnerable people in our county, families and individuals who are experiencing homelessness or who are at risk of homelessness, both have a particular emphasis on kids and making sure that kids who are at risk or experiencing homelessness are taken care of, whether that's food, uh, shelter, whether that's school supplies, all of these kind of basic things that many of us take for granted. They are on the front lines of meeting those needs. They also happen to be in the process of raising extra funds. Empower YOLO in particular is doing a matching campaign. So our $1,000 will become $2,000 Uh, And that's part of where the the two-week timeline comes in. But they're raising extra money right now because their current clients have great needs, but they're also anticipating that more clients will show up, right? That these needs will will increase pretty dramatically in the next couple of weeks and months as the economic impact of this pandemic continues to unfold. And then finally, the the rest of the money. So those first two goals are about $2,500. So this would be kind of 50% and beyond of what we raise will go to meet needs that come from within our community. In particular, we're hoping to help people uh, cover housing costs, food costs, especially if if you've lost a job. And then we also really want to help pay for mental health services. No one in our community, no one in our church, should forego counseling, meeting with a counselor, a spiritual director, whatever it might be, because they can't afford it. We want to help pay for that. So here's the invitation, Discovery. Here's the challenge, to give above and beyond our normal giving to help raise these funds. Now you can give online through our app, through our webpage. You'll just need to make sure that you select the Care and Compassion Fund. So not the general fund, but the Care and Compassion Fund. And you can also send a check uh, to 132 E Street, Suite 250, our downtown center. Um, Any of those ways are are totally fine as you think about what your response to this moment might be. Now, if you're in a place where you can't give, that's fine. There are so many other ways to be generous. And here's the one thing that we can all do. No matter what our financial status might be, we can all continue to contend in prayer. And this prayer piece is so important because there are a variety of things that we could do, right? There's so many different ways to serve and different needs that could be met. But this is what we are choosing to do, to partner with our our, uh, missions friends, to partner with these two local organizations, to meet these specific needs that come within our community, because this is what we feel like God 
has asked us to do, and then we are going to contend that God will take whatever we can collectively muster and multiply it so many times over, far beyond what we could ever hope or imagine. Academic, Martin Luther King Jr., thrust into a crisis. He moves from theory to activist. Reluctant Saul sees injustice and is transformed from farmer to king. We did not go looking for a global pandemic, but here we are. This is our moment. This is our chance to respond in generosity and sacrifice and love and to potentially change someone's story forever, to potentially change many people's stories forever because they will connect this to the good news of Jesus. Contending in crisis, leading to generosity and sacrifice, leading to unity and celebration. May it be so for us, discovery. Now, before I close in prayer, I just want to remind us of, of one thing. And this is what we talked about on Sunday as our sort of prep for communion. One of the reasons stories about people like Martin Luther King Jr., this story we, we looked at today about well, one of the reasons they resonate so much with us is that at some level we recognize this deep need, this desire for rescue. And as inspiring as King was and is, as awesome as Saul is in this part of the story, they pale in comparison to Jesus and to the rescue that he brings us through his life and his death and his resurrection. Of course, we celebrate and remember all of that in communion. But today I want to specifically invite you to be reflecting on your participation in being good news. Because Jesus has rescued us, we get to be a part of this rescue for others. And at the end of the day, it's not about us, right? What, is, what does it say? What does Samuel say? What does Saul say? In 1 Samuel 11, there will, the Lord has rescued Israel. The Lord has rescued us. And part of the good news of what Jesus does for us in his death and resurrection is, of course, what he does for us. The Lord has rescued us, but also that we get to be a part of rescue for others. So I just want to invite you to reflect on that truth. Have you allowed Jesus to rescue you? And are you part of his mission to go and rescue those who need it? And then how will you participate with us in this challenge, this opportunity, this invitation to to give and to be generous, to sacrifice out of love for the good of others so that the name of Jesus would be made famous in this place? Would you pray with me? Father, we do ask that you would take whatever we can come up with together, our small gift, and you would multiply it many times over. God, as we see responses to this pandemic, we may hear large numbers. We, of course, see the numbers being thrown around by our government and, and different parts of the world, but the economics of your kingdom do not work like the economics of the world. And so, Father, again, would you take what we have? Would you multiply it over? Would, would you use it to meet real needs to be a tangible expression of your good news, the rescue that you have given us through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. We pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Grace and peace, friends.